here today to talk about the war in Ukraine. We're interrupting our series on the story of God because as Blaine and I have been talking about what's happening in the world and as guys who go to the same church, part of the same called out community of Jesus followers, we've been discussing what is the church's response in these times. We've had a lot of concerns about about how the world wants us to respond to what's happening in Ukraine and just felt the pressure of excitement about, oh man, this is an opportunity for the church to practice being a prophetic called out people who know how to proclaim the kingdom of God in the midst of the raging of war of the empires. Yes. I happen to know that you have a lot to say on this topic. I'm, I'm excited to see how you get one thought out at a time. I feel excited because this really is practice, and practice in the kingdom of God is real, where we have a real urgent situation that is preoccupying the people of God. Our goal is to take on more of the nature of Christ and to join in his mission. Our goal is to see many saved. So we're going to take cracks at everyone in this conversation because all allegiance besides allegiance to Jesus is deeply and profoundly dangerous. Yeah, hopefully no matter what your allegiances are or what your worldview is, what your political disposition is, your personality type, uh, hopefully you will be in your flesh offended at some point in this conversation. At the same time, in your spirit awakened to the call of Jesus, to something that doesn't look like any human response, fealty to any human empire, anything that any of the spiritual powers would, uh, would receive as worship. Yeah, something that is also powerful tra and transformative. There were two things that I wanted to make sure I said in the introduction to this podcast. And one of them is an invitation from the 18th chapter of the revelation of Jesus that was given to John. And John sees an angel crying out over the world that Babylon is fallen. And then he hears another voice calling out to the people of God, which in the case of the story is anyone who puts their hand up. It's a lot like Exodus. Uh, the people of God, anyone who wants to say yes to the offer that's being made. And 18 chapter 4 says, I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. And I go, so the invitation at the beginning of this podcast is to come out of the world. Babylon is the Bible's stand-in for all earthly empires, which an earthly empire is what humans do to build a system that supports their own security and economic interests and salvation apart from God over and against other peoples. So we're going to make clear at the outset here that if you deeply identify with the United States of America, you need to understand that the United States of America is Babylon. If you deeply identify with the United States of America, 
with the empire that is Russia, with the empire that is Ukraine in this conflict. What about the empire that is NATO? Yeah, even worse. What about the empire that is the European Union? Now, it's funny, we try so hard to find the good guy in the contest between nations, and something that we receive in the story of the Bible is that there simply isn't one. Come out, come out, come out of Babylon, of service to the nations, to serve God, to be a part of the nation that's allegiant to Jesus that is trying to call many people to salvation. The good guy in the story is, of course, Jesus. And Jesus identifies himself with the poor, with the vulnerable, with the outcast, with the orphan, with the slave. And it's really easy for us to see the little guy in comparing multiple empires and to feel that's Jesus in this picture, or that our compassion and empathy should be with the little empire. But we're already jumping pretty far into our outline here. But one of the points that we'll make throughout this discussion is that the little guy is the children, the actual human beings who are vulnerable populations, not the empire that is Ukraine. Yes. Let's also say that the little guy is the Russian soldier. Exactly. Let's say that the little guy is the Ukrainian militia. And my goodness, there should be no one that we are not able to regard according to Christ, especially the person who is posturing as our most significant enemy. Yeah. As I was meditating on this, that point came to mind, and I was thinking about the oppressive nature. Uh, I felt like God was giving me compassion for our country's political leaders, for Putin, for the various human beings that are in the position of the human representative of the power and you know, occupy that place in the system of empire. And I was realizing how oppressive a role that is, how awful to be stuck in that position of the human representation of, of oppression, behind which is the spiritual powers waging war against the return of Christ and, and the image of God on earth. Um, Putin is not the bad guy in this picture. Now, he, he's, uh, he's Pharaoh, so is Biden, so, is, uh, so are the, the cabinet behind NATO and so on. They are the bad guy in a certain sense. But as human beings, uh, our job in this understanding the story and, de- and deciding how we, how we should feel and who the bad guy is. Um, I look at those human beings, like pick one, the president, I forget his name, the president of Ukraine. Um, I just feel compassion for them. This system of death and destruction uh, that is empire is terrible for all human beings, including the people that seem to be the ones to benefit from it the most. Going back to your point about that passage in Revelation come out of her. Just to capture the full thrust of, I'm not going to say that, that's too much of a pun. Just to capture the weight of that call to come out of Babylon, there's a book that I highly recommend called Jesus for President by Shane Claiborne. I think maybe there's a second author. And he's a person whose work and thought I would not endorse wholesale. Nonetheless, his book, Jesus for President, is very important. He makes the point that that passage in Revelation John is, uh, I guess this is a moment to 
possibly cover your kids' ears or something like that, just as a parental warning. But not to be too graphic about it, what, he, what he's saying is uh, Babylon is the great prostitute, and to come out of her, you know, you can obviously see what this is going in terms of the sexual imagery, but God is actually calling us to leave our practice of occultic prostitution and to stop participating with her in that way. Oh man, this is going to be serious. So I thought that it would be helpful at the beginning to pray. You know, the exodus has already come up, but this morning as I was driving into town, I was picturing the different players and just praying along with Moses in the first part of Exodus, let my people go allying with the power of Jesus to picture Russian soldiers and go, let my people go, as in spiritual powers empowering that violence that they are swept up in. Let the men go. Let the individuals go. And all across, all across the landscape, that being the cry. So we, it's funny, we, we wrote this prayer a while ago, but it is so, it's relevant at the beginning of this conversation. So to preface all things, you know, our hope is that we would come out of this conversation having received a message of comfort, that conviction would lead us into beholding the beauty of Jesus into a greater measure of love, and that we would see that there is much we can do that has power and eternal value in the times that we're being given to live in. So here is one of the prayers we wrote inside Mount Vigil, a prayer to prevail at the end of an age. We call today on the name, Jesus, deliver us, Jesus, save us, Jesus, let us prevail over the devices of witches and the practice of pagans and the schemes of sorcerers and the curses of those who hate and the lies of false prophets and the gospels of false teachers. Let us prevail over the deception of leftists and the delusion of rightists and the oppression of statists and the madness of the technocrats and the schemes of pagans and elites and the loneliness of liberalism and the meaninglessness of nihilists and let all people instead glorify God. Let humanists bow to the Lord and transhumanists praise him. Let politicians tremble and elites fear the name. Let us repent and our families repent and many turn and be saved. But judge the princes, God. Let the principalities die and the powers fail. Let thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities all fall and face the judgment seat of God. Against all these, we bring the work of Jesus, in whom we have died and in whom we live. We claim our victory in the name, and we say here, your kingdom come, your will be done, Jesus. Let our souls sing and glory in God. Let our hearts be refreshed and our vision restored. Let our households be delivered and our burdens removed. Jesus, comfort us. Jesus, save us. Let us know the strength of old and the fire our ancestors saw that burns in the eyes of God. Let us be anchored in Christ and live in Christ. Let us see many saved. Holy is God. Come, Lord Jesus, 
with our hearts, we say, come, with our work, we say, come, with our love, we say, come, and our hopes, we say, come, the Spirit and the Bride say, come, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. So we've introed the topic of the war in Ukraine, and we've already just kind of strafed probably several of our cards on the table, and let's kind of back up a little bit and reintroduce this topic. It's amazing the uniformity of emotional and narrative response to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. If you look at any mainstream news outlet or probably the average person on the street, there's basically one way that we are supposed to respond to what's going on. And that narrative looks something like deranged madman Putin decides to take over Ukraine in his Hitlerian bid to take over the world for no good reason. Ukraine is our friend, a nation, or people that I care about all of a sudden. And my emotions are shock, disbelief, depression, anxiety, grief. We should side with Ukraine. We should side against Russia. We should take Russia's vodka off the, the shelves at the liquor store and do anything we can to bring as much harm as possible to the Russian people or the Russian nation, depending on how we're, we're phrasing it. And we should put all of our resources possible We should be really happy when NATO activates missile defense programs in Slovakia. We should figure out what the Ukrainian flag looks like and, you know, hang it from our window. We should add the Ukrainian flag emoji to our next barrage of social media communications. And pause, because we're going to dive into that story. But I do, I have to share my response in the flesh to that narrative. Because that, that's it, right? That's the story, the, that's the loudest story with which the American people, maybe all of the Western nations are being presented. Bad Russia is doing something. And what's important to know here at the beginning is, you know, we all have different temptations in the flesh when the world starts telling a story and they're not helpful. And man, mine... When I saw this start to unfold, you and I have been having conversations for several weeks about what's going to happen in the chess game of the world. And in the back of my mind, my inner prepper is preparing to run my life. And so when I saw mm -hmm. things start to happen, my reactivity was, you know what, on the way home, I'm going to use my supercomputer cell phone that can connect to the internet to just order a couple greenhouses and some seeds because I see all crisis as an opportunity for the one world order to assert itself. And my fear, you know, I have a different antagonist of choice. But when I see Biden issue a warning, I read an article in USA Today, and he said, you know, Biden sternly, sternly shakes his finger at natural gas and the oil companies and says, don't take this opportunity to hike up prices. I think that's exactly what you're going to do. Real and manufactured shortages are a way to usher in empire, more exhaustive dominion, and I'm going to get out of that. And it was like, oh, okay, well, okay. So I 
am not immune to fear, anger, and hatred as a defensive response. Now, even if my story is slightly different, or even if my antagonist of choice, again, apart from Christ, is someone different. Like, it's, it's easy for me to hate the one world order more than positioning myself in opposition to the spiritual powers who are opposed to Christ. So it was like, okay, I hear that story. I actually have to go soothe my inner prepper again. I have to go, you are not going to run this show. I am going to look for Jesus. I'm going to find ways to see him and love him and then let my attachment to him govern my response to that story. Hmm. Your flesh's response, along with fear, hatred, anger, one thing I want to highlight in, in the story that you just told is something that sounds very reasonable, and yet when you look at the the, the worldview, spiritual worldview, the metaphysical foundations of it, it's, um, a, as you pointed out, against the gospel, <laughs> which is, okay, um, I see a little bit beyond the typical narrative, which is, Russia bad, Ukraine good, this is all straightforwardly coming to me in a narrative form that I can trust. You're a few steps beyond that, and you're saying, no, this is somehow attached to the global state's bid for a one-world order, which is a topic that is very important (laughs) to us, but we haven't fully developed and probably will devote a whole episode to at some point here. But suffice it to say that that's something we see coming. And so in light of that, what I need to do is exercise to the full degree possible my ability to acquire resources, to exert power in the world, to accumulate food, um, <laughs> weapons, etc., currencies of various kinds, or fuel, to make a pile of material resources that I can deploy. Now, if you um, want to feel more justified about that worldview, you might you know, then say, like, oh, so I can you know, help my community. But the, 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 the fleshly foundation of that initial knee-jerk response is really, there's only so much economic resources are a zero-sum game, and I need to make sure I get mine. Now, we're not going to say that there isn't a wise Holy Spirit-led response to what we see happening in the world that materially looks like having some extra water, uh, having some extra fuel, having some food independence, and so on, in a way that actually is aimed at benefiting your community and living out church life in a way where multiple families economies are thrown in together and we can continue to practice this form of called out living so the actual expression of it might look very similar but the place it's coming from makes a world of difference is it coming from this place of want and fear and dread and i will kill anyone that tries to take away from me and my family or from this place of, I know that Jesus is coming with his kingdom, with the resurrection, and I'm going to live into that now. And he has called me to this group of people that I call my church, my city, whatever, in a way that is generous and prophesies to them what this coming kingdom, which is already here, but not fully here, is like. Yes. And sort of get out of it. I mean, we had to have a worship night. The, the substance of which, you know, part of for me was... Knowing Jesus, I don't have the wisdom to navigate this. I want to be deeply motivated by, the, by you and your work. I want to be motivated by having taken on the substance and the nature of Jesus. And so it was like, Jesus, I'm a little spun out right now about, you know, 
all of the ramifications of another catalyst in the global, let's say, trajectory. And oh, I'd just be like, okay, I just have to see you because I do not want to operate in reactivity. I do not want to operate in any form of self-saving or pulling away uh, rather than, you know, empowered, compassionate, missional vision. Mm. That's a great example of one fleshly response to the war in Ukraine. My flesh's response looks something like, similar to you, I call BS on the mainstream narrative. And I've maybe got a little more information on the larger context of this current warfaring activity in Ukraine, so that the mainstream narrative coming to us from basically all mainstream media outlets is totally unappealing to me. But then in response to that, in my flesh, I respond with basically nihilistic pride. My pride being, I'm too good to fall for the narrative that's being forced down my throat. But what my flesh can bring to the table in that moment of seeing beyond that particular enchantment is just, screw it. This cold-hearted, like, yeah, empires do what empires do. The country of Ukraine is irrelevant to me. They're not my friends. The nation of Russia is not my friend. The nation of the United States of America is not my friend. The aggressive warmongering alliance that is NATO are not my friend. And then looking at people around me who have emotions in response to the story and just uh, feeling critical of them. Like, you know what? The only reason you're feeling feelings is because the media wants you to right now. You haven't cared about all these other things that are happening every day prior to this that are just as bad or worse. So the best I can do is be haughtily aware of what's happening and just say, screw it. I have some of the, you know, similar reactions to you in terms of requiring resources and, and making sure that me and mine are, are taken care of, but it comes from a, a very, like, it's, it's all pointless anyways kind of perspective. So that's a, pretty dark, that's a pretty dark response. And had how quick your journey has been, because I happen to know that you're able to relate to, hen- to tender-hearted people in love, able to bless their tender-heartedness as a good thing. So how did you, how did you get from there to here like so fast? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, well it is fast. That sounds like a big loaded set of thoughts, but I mean, I I can go through such a barrage of nihilistic propositions in like, you know, five minutes. But you actually like in your question provided one of the answers, which is the other people in my community who are wired differently than me and who are much more just naturally compassionate and empathetic and see the world differently than me. So one of the first answers I'll give to that question of how did I escape that nihilistic vortex Uh, And by escape, I mean repent of it and receive Jesus' invitation into something better. Well, pretty quickly into this few days, we're only a few days into it, so it's pretty quickly anyways, pretty quickly into the the story in our shared communication platform, in the place that our church communicates with each other, I saw other people responding differently than me in my nihilistic pride. I saw them saying, oh, I feel grief. Let's pray together. Let's have a worship night on behalf of the people of Ukraine. Let's, um, let's have a worship night just on behalf of, of the people of the world who are suffering under the oppression of sin and on behalf of calling forth, calling out, Jesus, come quickly. So those worshipful, prayerful responses that I saw in my community were instructive to me. And one of my favorite quotes of Bonhoeffer, 
in one of my favorite books of his, Life Together, which I recommend everyone read once a year, uh, is the Jesus in my brother is stronger than the Jesus in me. And the point he's making is one of the ways that we stay close to Jesus and avoid falling away is by living life in a community of people who follow him. Because at that moment when you are giving into your flesh or losing hope or, or succumbing to, to warfare, someone else in your community is experiencing intimacy with Jesus and can be Jesus to you, can bring the gospel to you. That's one of the answers. Also, as much as my, flesh, my fleshly response in the midst of anything, I guess, is, 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 is potent and that narrative can seem all-encompassing and quite real, my flesh is subject to the spirit within me. And so I do believe the gospel. I do believe that Jesus is coming. I do believe that there is good news and that uh, the government will be set on his shoulders and that all things will be set right. And I do love people. I actually do have compassion. And uh, I do think that there is a role for the church to play that looks like um, grieving and lots of other things that we'll talk about here. So there is a, a, a reality like my, my worldview, through years of reading the scriptures and practicing the spiritual disciplines and life together and all the things, spiritual formation, I have been formed over time such that my flesh is less powerful in, in steering the ship than my spirit, and my flesh has to submit to the spirit within me. Woof, dude. That's so good. That is heavy duty. And you gestured towards, you know, the, the target where... Where we are heading is vision according to Jesus, to see the global situation in terms of the story of God and to understand our job, which is pretty awesome. There are a couple things to talk about first, just to kind of orient us to why is it so bewildering? Why is it hard to get perspective? And... The first thing that we wanted to hit was don't be Hegel. <laughs> don't be Hegel is my way of talking is, about... Uh, is Hegel a verb? Is that a... <laughs> uh, Hegel is Anthony's favorite philosopher. He has a very warm spot in his heart for that sorcerer. Um, don't be Hegel is a way is my way of talking about relating to media uniformity. And Hegel is one of the dominant voices of a thing called the dialectic, uh, dialectical materialism. And all that means is that Hegel doesn't preach materialism. That's from Marx. I accept your correction. We should leave that in. <laughs> so the Hegelian dialectic, which you're right, he's a deeply spiritual person, the world spirit, finding ways to manifest itself. It's just basically that there's always a dominant story, the thesis, and then there's a rival story, the antithesis, and then they somehow work together to create a synthesis, which then becomes the new thesis. And let me, let me tell you how that works, is that right now there is a thesis in the media description, like and I, out of curiosity and out of interest, I spent a long time hitting the Foxes and the CNNs and the Washington Posts and the New Yorker and the New York Times. and The Foxes and the Voxes. The Foxes and the Voxes. And you get this, like, 
basically, you just get playing off the Russian boogeyman. Russia bad, Russia bad. I read an article this morning that was like on Ukraine's move towards going into the European Union. And I went, yeah, of course. But also, it had this little paragraph in there that said, you know, many people thought that Ukraine was decades away because of its deep internal corruption, but maybe we can overlook that now to bring it into the fold. And I just went, yeah, yeah. So, so that is the thesis story. And, you know, the best essay that I know that our mutual friend shared with me on how the media works right now is called The Brain Dead Megaphone. This is George Saunders' essay on... Basically, if a guy at a party had a megaphone, pretty soon every conversation would be about what the megaphone guy was talking about, even if it was, man, I don't agree with that guy. So it's just the media is able to broadcast a story, and it's so loud that everyone is forced to respond to it. You invoked the concept in a previous conversation of interpolation, which is really important in understanding why we get forced into perspectives and positions on like an A, B, false choice, kind of uh, vicious logic. Yeah, exactly. You know, interpolation is when your friends really want to watch the Super Bowl and they refuse to relate to you apart from the interpretive lens of the Super Bowl, which is, oh, you're a sports fan or, oh, you're one of those people who hate sports. And you go, I am neither. I have no relationship whatsoever apart from a passing interest in the economics of sports. But you can be interpolated when you're forced to relate and you're, you're forced to play a role inside a story you did not design. Now, my, my quick note on this is that, uh, okay, so media un- uniformity. Whenever people are telling the same story, you should be concerned. And whenever you're not allowed to say anything different, because, for example, I remember several years ago when I ran into an article in The Guardian that was, why Genghis Khan was good for the planet. (laughs) Subtitle, laying waste to land scrubbed 700 million tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And get this, Genghis Khan may have been not just the greatest warrior, but the greatest eco-warrior of all time. I think you mean Genghis Khan. Yeah, sorry, Genghis Khan. This same logic came up in a letter from the Gates Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates. I think they were still married at the time. Um, Anyways, regardless, it came up from the Gates Foundation's letter written by Bill, in which I think maybe in 2020, at the end of 2020, maybe 21, in which he talked about the carbon-scrubbing benefits of COVID, basically less air travel and so on, and basically saying like, yeah, it was pretty good, but man, it could have been a lot better. (laughs) Right? And, and what I'm saying here is that the media, the main story, allows a contrary story about one of the greatest mass murderers ever, Genghis Khan, who killed 10% of the world's population. Okay, it, it, it lets someone say something like, but you know, from the point of view of the planet, it was good to wipe out those humans. It also lets people say things like, there's, there's always something in the food space that I think is really interesting. This was an old old article, but it's still a popular perspective. The article is titled, The End of Food. And it was talking about the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who created a drink that supplied all the body's nutrients. Now, this is a ridiculous proposition, especially when there are books out there like Blue Zones, which is a book that if you want it on how human life is supposed to work, read that one. 
where they just went around, and it was a National Geographic journalist, and he went around and found the regions where you had the most old, healthy people and tried to figure out what the deal was. And it was about human life is about being embedded in community and a sense of place, and that healthy food is food that's eaten with people. Now, there's not really, <laughs> it's like the same thesis of the China study, essentially. Uh, but you can have, you can have an opinion like people don't need food, and, and that will be published in the New Yorker. But if you want to say right now, I don't think Russia's the bad guy, you will be killed. <laughs> if you want to say, man, hey, the entire world was issued the same mRNA therapy, and you weren't allowed to say at all, maybe that's bad. In fact, there was an, there's, all, there's an ongoing aggressive campaign to smother all contrary voices and go, wait a second, I'm allowed to say that Genghis Khan is a good guy, but I can't say maybe Russia isn't, you know, the, the real baddie in this one. That's, that's an extremely bad situation where you just know that you have a mass formation, some form of mass psychosis going on where everyone's stirred up into fear. However, the antithesis is, is just as dangerous. And the antithesis, you know, is what we were describing being tempted to in our flesh, which was like, well, I don't buy that story. I think this is all being drummed up so that Biden can do whatever. You don't want that position. That position won't help you. There is a real refusal to relate to the world on its own terms, to relate to the world in the flesh. That is the way forward of the church. Yeah, and it's important to realize that dialectics are often deployed by the people in power and the spiritual powers backing them in a way that accelerates, that is aimed at accelerating towards some end. And guess what? Every end of every program that is not the program of Jesus, his church and his kingdom and the good news only goes toward death and destruction. So the, the dialectic around COVID. And you talked about how you couldn't say anything about mRNA therapies. <laughs> we'll continue deploying that rhetorical move, which is just actually a more honest approach to describing what that medicine is than calling it vaccines. You couldn't say anything critical or questioning about it. But actually, that is right now changing rapidly. So it's not like mainstream media, the world, the, the human powers. It's not like their uniform perspective on any given subject represents an actual set of values. It represents a moment in this dialectical game that is going somewhere. So the moment that was, you cannot question at risk of complete ostracization or losing your job or losing your friends or whatever, you can't critique the world's mainstream response to COVID. Well, now, like right before the State of the Union in the U.S., Congress is getting rid of all pro-mask mandates or whatever, whatever the appropriate language is there. You have SNL. I'm not sure if you've seen the new SNL skit. It's, it's just as not funny as like everything they do these days, which is it's just extremely boring. Um, maybe that's just me. But you have them doing their first skit on COVID in which this exact conversation comes up. Um, it's actually kind of funny. It's just like there's this weird vibe to everything that they do now. We'll link to a video because it's hard to fully describe. But basically, you have people at a dinner party and they're all representing 
a self-conscious adherence to that mainstream narrative, but then they all start slowly trying to talk their way tenderly, um, walking on eggshells around critique of the mainstream narrative. And they all have these pretty exaggerated, like, oh, wait, 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 where, where are you going with that? Are you about to, don't go there, and so on. Anyways, it's a, a mediocrely funny skit. But the point is that in mainstream media, it, as now, right now, we're jumping from the dialectical beat of religious adherence to permanent fear and submission to the COVID global state, however you want to describe it, to, no, COVID really is done now. And now the story is, Ukraine. And there's other ways of dialectics are very like amorphous and loosey goosey. So there's other ways of talking about how these beats work. But it's hard to be a person who wants to follow Jesus and wants to know what's really going and know how to submit your emotions to a true narrative in the midst of that really powerful back and forth process that you talked about mass psychosis that has this great enchantment that goes like a cloud over the globe and takes humanity with it. It's hard to resist that. And at any point in that dialectic, you can be on the other side. So there's the big B of COVID and now Ukraine and now the next thing that we have to freak out about. At each point in that dialectic, there's an opposing position. And every position you can take out of your own human power only accelerates the dialectic. And again, the dialectic always goes towards death and destruction. No matter what, what's on the tin, what's inside the tin is drink this and you die. Boom. Frequently, as, as you said, when I refer to Hegel, I do so quite negatively because I do believe that he is literally a very powerful sorcerer who has led many to their doom. I'm also, in one sense, a fan of Hegel because he was a true genius reading his phenomenology of spirit and so on. I mean, there are moments where it's just exhilarating because of the incredible insight. So I don't want to... Yes, Hegel is fundamentally evil and the place he wants to take you is bad. This will come up a couple times in this conversation. You can, you can get that someone is not your friend, but then also realize that there are... Like, we just deployed Hegel. I don't want a simplistic response to a very influential thinker's work to be communicated by us. So, yes, Hegel wants you to adopt the spiritual worldview that will result in your death and destruction. Also, he does have real insight about, about reality. Most sorcerers do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, also, just if you have no idea what we're talking about here, here's a very simplistic heuristic for how to respond when you see a uniform narrative being deployed across mainstream media and the world. And that is... I'm sorry, you used the word heuristic. Could you say that again using some, a word? <laughs> rule of thumb. Here's a great rule of thumb. Here's okay. a great rule of thumb. If you see one uniform narrative and everyone around you conforming to it with their emotional response and the stories that they're telling, you should be suspicious but not in a way that you simply decide to rebel against that uniform narrative with the opposite and find the other people who are, but in a way that makes you go to prayer, go to discernment, and ask the Holy Spirit and the testament of the scriptures and the, the, uh, the leading of the people that, you, that have spiritual authority in your life. Like, what is true here? That's good. That's so good. My color commentary, as you are suspicious... We're going to get to this a lot more at the end. We are still saying to remain 
tender-hearted. You can steward your soul and yet be movable even with Christ as your anchor. So to go, when you see that happening and you're like going and you're going to go into prayer to look for interpretation, you're also going to be relating to people who are probably more moved than you are by the story that's going around. You should have compassion and love for them and relate to the soul. But we're going to get to that extensively in, uh, in part whatever that will be of this conversation. Because something we've been so excited to talk about, drum roll please, is that in order to understand what's going on, what is happening with these power bids, we really need to return to shaping our imagination through the story of God about the thing that is a nation. Like, what are these nations and empires trying to do? Where do they come from? There are multiple steps to that question, which are like all the videos that go around anytime there's an international event, which is like, why does Russia want Ukraine? Which is as much to say, do you know any of the first principles of what nations are and do, of why they do? Do you know what empires are? Of course not. And then, do you actually see those things not as a secular political scientist, but do you see those, um, but do you see those entities as someone who is being transformed by the story of God? So, Ant-Man nations, where, where would you start? We have to start with the Tower of Babel. So... The typology of empire begins with the Tower of Babel. We have this mighty hunter, Giburim, this mighty man named Nimrod, who, as a kid, I read about and was like, this guy sounds awesome. And then I kept reading and I was like, am I supposed to like him or not? He seems like the kind of person that I want to be like, but he also seems bad. Well, the answer is he is bad. And if you want to be, hey kids, uh, if you want some Giborim that you can be like, look to David's mighty men. So the, the word is not uniformly evil or good. Anyways, Nimrod, he's the first named expression of a mighty man. He's a hunter. Um, you know, there are sayings like if you're, if you're a manly, powerful guy, you're like Nimrod. Under his leadership, the people, I'm not sure which all tribes and peoples are actually included in the story, but mythologically, just the people under his leadership decide to build a tower. And in this project, their aim is to, through their alliance under a mighty leader and under and toward a vision of reality and a vision of the telos of mankind, the, the ultimate end, they unite to build a tower that, uh, by which they could ascend to the heavens and join the divine council, join the pantheon of the Elohim that we talked about in the last episode. And don't you love hearing that that is what the Tower of Babel event is like? I have told people at other times, some of the things that I just hear in the Protestant West about the Tower of Babel, and they're so bizarre. I mean, I get them, but just without a coherent narrative, it's a hard event to interpret. I've heard people say that it was the safety solution in case of another flood. That's a creative uh, solution. Isn't that but, but we say, okay, wait, wait. 
One, the Tower of Babel story starts almost immediately after the expulsion from the garden. And it starts with Cain and Abel. And Cain is warned that uh, birthed in his envy is this crouching demonic creature sin that could master him or he could rule over it. Well, he becomes dominated by it on purpose. And he is cursed from the ground. The ground itself will not support him. So when you find him later in the chapter, when Enoch is born, what is he doing? Well, it says Cain was then building a city. And we say, aha, what he did in the story, again, that's telling you something important about human nature, however else it works. When we say typologies here, we're talking about these repeating patterns that come to us like an urgent message that the Bible wants us to make sure we know this is something real. And Cain goes and founds a commercial empire to achieve his own security apart from the blessing of God, apart from dependency on the ground. And then from Cain comes the murderer Lamech, and you, you keep going and you end up with Nimrod, who's going to, f- who's going to found the first empire that's going to make a deliberate bid to get on the throne of God. It's going to apply a technology, by the way, to make a name for itself. But to get that, I mean, Cosmic Mountains, Ant-Man, what's the just quick rundown on how these ziggurats and temples and things are related? The rundown on Cosmic Mountains is that in the ancient mind, The two places that the gods dwelt were in gardens and on top of mountains. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we have this combination. Eden is a mountainous garden. And in it, God places Adam and Eve, the people that he wants to go on and image him and uh, administrate his kingdom throughout the world. In that story, of course, the seraphim, the, the serpent, deceives them. He says... The way to become like God is to rebel against God. The sad thing about the story is that the end of mankind, if they had not tried to become like God, was to become like God. And what we see here is that by virtue of trying to take by one's own power for oneself out out of God's will and and out of his timing, that which is our end anyways, we achieve our own destruction. So the end of mankind is to via theosis, which is this rich, this rich theology of salvation in which divinization of a kind happens in our union with Christ, and we do join the divine council to administrate God's creation into eternity, the pursuit of that outside of intimate relationship with God is where the fall of mankind happens. And then something like it happens at the Tower of Babel, because it is our end to be united under the administration of a beautiful heavenly city, and it is our end to see heaven and earth joined. That happens in the story of Revelation when Jesus returns and the heavenly city descends to the earthly city and heaven and earth are joined. So the end that these people in the story in Genesis 11 were seeking is a perversion of what their end is anyways if they only sought it via intimacy with God. Instead, they seek it through their own power. And it's interesting that they say in verse 4 of chapter 11, Genesis, they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower that is 
and to tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That's a perversion and rebellion against what mankind's actual destiny is, which is to lift up the name of Jesus instead of making a name for ourselves. Our end is to be dispersed over the whole earth, but not in a diluting way, not in a diminishing way, but in a way that was always the plan from the beginning. The plan in the beginning was for Adam and Eve to not just rest in the cultivated, ordered place of the garden, but to extend that cultivation by fulfilling their call to reproduce, to multiply, to subdue the earth. The plan was to take the beauty and cultivated shalom of, of Eden and to administrate that eventually over the whole planet and throughout creation. So what we see is Satan, he's always, because of course there are spiritual powers behind this project, it's not just Nimrod, but, the, but ultimately it's always the deceiver for various spiritual powers who are, who are part of that project or behind it, backing it. What we see is the enemy leading mankind to his end in the tower. Instead of becoming, instead of becoming the, the full expression of God's design for mankind, it becomes a perversion of it. And beat for beat, the entire story of God, the enemy is always doing this. Yes. And at the Tower of Babel, humanity is about to refashion the world in its image. It's going to get on the throne of God. And they do that by deliberately making their own cosmic mountain. It's going to be the gate of the gods. They're going to make God come down and serve them. Now, what's awesome about that story is that God does come down and it doesn't go how they planned. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but to say, you know, mountains across cultures, they've, you hinted at this, they've always, they are viewed as the dwelling place of the gods. And... You know, the Bible uses real things to talk about real things. And so you have Eden as a mountaintop garden. You have the new Jerusalem at the end of the story. And then all the way through, Sinai, uh, Tabor, Hermon, Horeb. You have these mountains that express the dominion of God on earth. Well, Babel is the anti-version of that. It is the human cosmic mountain, humanity on the throne of God asserting a name for themselves against all others. And this is going to play a role, you know, because the plain of Shinar where it's built, Babel, those are both Babylon. And Babylon is a real historical empire that happens to be the one that destroys the temple in 587 BC that becomes also the way of talking about all violent human empires that try to get on the throne of God and make the world in their image. For example, when Abraham is not Ur, Ur actually has a giant cosmic mountain ziggurat there. It's very scary. Uh, and when the narrator says that God called to Ur, it says that he was at Ur of the Chaldees. The Chaldees are the Babylonians. Now, they were not there when Abraham was there. That city Ur had been the seat of Sumerians and Akkadians and a number of empires. But the narrator deliberately ties the story and goes, he was an Ur of the Babylonians, meaning he was an Ur of humanity's attempt to get on the throne of God when God called him out of it. So the Tower of Babel becomes the empire of Babylon, which becomes the, the central typological image of the evil of empire, the attempt of mankind, always in partnership with spiritual powers, to make a vision of humanity and make a vision of, 
uh, salvation, make a vision of good on the earth in a way that's in rebellion against God. One of the next big beats in the scriptures that we see re-expressing this typology is Egypt. So when we see Egypt, we should see Babylon. Of course, in that story, we have a powerful man at the head of this empire, the Pharaoh. We have the people of Israel being enslaved. And then we have God calling his people out from under that enslavement into the wilderness. And uh, after 40 years of wandering in that wilderness, pursuing, once again, trying to recapture the mission of the people of God to advance his kingdom on the earth, to bring his story of salvation. And then, unfortunately becoming the violent empire. I mean, just to hit riff a little more on Egypt, because I'm thinking about this a lot in my season of life, which is that Egypt is a vessel of preservation in the beginning. This family that's the steward of a covenant promise goes down during a famine and survives because of the Egyptian civilization. And then they don't leave. And for hundreds of years, they could. But it's so appealing. I mean, Egypt knew that its power was the result of the power of its gods. And its gods were renowned in the world at that time and feared. And the gods expressing their power in this intensely aggressive military. And And so say, you have a civilization where life looks pretty good. Where? You can do the right things and be a part of the Egyptian thing, you know, and enjoy the benefits of a large slave population of Semites and Cushites and Nubians until, oops, eventually it makes you a slave. And eventually you can't leave. And eventually God has to come rescue you from the best salvation plan apart from dependency on God and really being his people. And then they go out and they give it a try again. But the next thing you know, by the time you get to the prophets near the end of the kingdom period, people like Jeremiah, people like Isaiah, they're calling out Israel for having become the power that asserts its own dominance by abusing widows and orphans and travelers and foreigners. And it goes, oh my gosh, you're doing it now. You have become Babylon. Yeah, so when we act like Babylon, when we act like Egypt, when we live by the principle of empire, we become those things spiritually. And we cease to identify with God's kingdom, and we identify with these kingdoms of man, these kingdoms of the enemy. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, in his book, The Prophetic Imagination, he calls it the royal consciousness. And what he describes when Egypt is being Egypt, or when Israel is acting like Egypt, is these three big themes— Uh, He describes an economics of affluence, a politics of oppression, and a religion of eminence. That third point takes a a little more explanation. Basically, what he says is the religion gets co-opted by empire. So when Israel begins to fall away from its, its calling to express the nature of God, the qualities of God, the the real design for mankind, and acts like an empire, the religion gets co-opted into those aims. And the priesthood, the prophets, the liturgies and rituals and the expression of the cult all get co-opted for political ends to further those aims of of power, dominance, oppression. And it happens both when when Israel acts like Egypt to the outsider, to the 
immigrant to the wanderer or whatever. Also, when they oppress their own people, when an injustice is tolerated and uh, actually like systematized within Israel, the, the same condemnation happens. Yes. <clears throat> and I, w- I want to talk for a second about what that starts to look like in world history. Because you could look around right now and say, well, I don't see priests, you know, in Congress. I wish there were more priests in Congress. And go, oh, actually, sorry, that whole building is full of priests. Uh, It is a church. (laughs) Yeah, but it's not your friend. Or a temple. It's a temple. But what this looks like is nations are notoriously hard to identify. And We said before that in the Bible, they're really identified by the God that they serve. The promise, what happens in Exodus is that you have a family that then goes down, but then intermarries, and so is somewhat genetically related, but mostly related by seeing themselves as related. Then the offer that gets made with Moses is, do you want to leave Egypt? Take the Passover, and I will be your God. And all of these people who are not the genetic descendants of Abraham. Come, they become a part of that. You know, we, the one that is the famous example is Phineas, who's a black Nubian, and yet he's a descendant of Aaron in the story, and a descendant of Abraham, by serving the God who calls to Israel, by saying he wants to be in. Now, and, and this tracks, let's say, one of the most, one of the earliest definitions of, you know, a clan, a tribe, is who do you feed and fight for? Marketers have identified tribes and gone, just answer the question, people like us do things like this and you'll know who your tribe is. Now, one of the forms, there are two ways basically of talking about nation. One is like a nationality, which is very abstract. One way of thinking of that is people who share a cultural life, like the same kind of way of being human. Another way is a widespread group of people who share a government. And when we look around at the nations of the world, they are so abstract, it can be kind of like bewildering to go, how do these fit into the story of the Bible? You go, well, people who have decided to work together to assert their own security are be- <laughs> have these names of nations and... Many of the boundaries are quite arbitrary, and people in them are saying, we're not actually a nation because you over there have this kind of ritual life, and we have one, and so we want to be two things. But you do have a people going, we're going to share a government, we're going to share some form of a ritual life, and it's us versus the world, and you know where the boundary is because it's where you're not allowed to go without getting some kind of special permission. And something to know about these cultures is that all of them reconciled into Jesus have something wonderful to bring to the world. They can play a role in that Genesis mandate of bringing creativity, life, and order to the rest of the world. All of them expressed apart from Jesus are going to incline towards destructive violence. And so inside any of the modern nations, you have multiple stories about what the thing is that you identify around that makes you a part of the nation. And guys, they are different 
but they are equally bad. So here in the United States, we have a classical story that's like, we were built on Christian principles and the value of the individual and classical liberalism, and that's being taken away as government gets bigger and that's anti-American and we need to get back to it. And we can say honestly, that's just a different form of destruction. Now, we have a story about being American right now means democratic inclusion. It means radical humanist principles applied to a socially engineered society. One of the main narratives for what it means to be American right now that I think people are trying to bring to primacy in this country is people who benefit from the nanny state, people for whom the government provides food, medical care, and so on. You're an American if you uh, get a universal basic income check every month. You're an American you know, if you depend on the state for your provision. And I think here in the U.S., what you're talking about, like what's a nation, is challenging for us because we think that what it means to be a nation is really reducible to this legal status. And we think that they kind of exist as these platonic ideals that are defined by law. And so... A nation is a people who live under a government, as you said, and live with an identifiable border, which we can use GPS to exactly determine on the earth. There's a globally shared legal framework for how nations interact with each other and assert their independence. And so we often get caught up in that as if the current configuration of legally defined nations have their own kind of eternal platonic destiny and value and so on. And yet... Every nation within it is divided, mankind within those nations are divided, on what it takes to qualify as a member of that nation, where those physical borders should be drawn, um, what the people who are part of that nation really look like, and so on. So in the U.S., we think that the rest of the world might see it this way, where this project was d designed on liberal democratic principles, uh, purportedly at least, and anyone who comes here and goes through a certain ritual and makes certain commitments and knows certain information about the civic cult that is, uh, you know, the American religion. And literally makes a vow of allegiance yeah. to the founding document. Yeah, if you declare allegiance and, and say the Pledge of Allegiance and all the things, then you, you fit. If you are in China, a person who is Chinese isn't a person who does those things. It's a person who is Han Chinese, who is of a certain race as it's currently conceptualized. Now, of course... I mean, the actual history of the race is murky and complicated and contradictory, and yet it's a very powerful story that drives China. So anyways, you, you can see this kind of argument working its way out, all these different human logics as to what it takes to qualify as a nation. The only political commitment that you will ever hear either Blaine or I make, unless we're just uh, <laughs> relapsing into old sinful ways, is to, is to the kingdom of God. One of the things that, that we put a lot of effort into shaping our imaginations around is that the kingdom of God really is its own political project. A church gathering, the word ecclesia, what that meant in its original context and what it is even now is a political unit. It's an expression of a politic. So we are recording on Monday. Yesterday morning when I got together with my people and we opened up the scriptures, we prayed, we worshiped, we took communion, and we spent time with each other and broke bread. That was political. That was the expression of our civic cult. But the civic cult being unto the kingship of Jesus and the advancement of his, of his kingdom 
uh, throughout the universe. And it's really, ultimately, while we can express that in the context of a human nation, like the United States of America in our case, and we can do so in a way that is generous and sacrificial and serving, and according to Jeremiah, like seeking the welfare of the city, the reality is that we, that ultimately the kingdom of God is over and against all other kingdoms and is therefore a threat to every kingdom of mankind. Yes, this is why, by the way, the writings of the apostles tell people to, whenever possible, live at peace with their civil authorities. And the lives of the apostles show that's always been impossible because other forms of allegiance will always ask you to do things you can't do because you serve God, and they will forbid you to do things you must do before you serve God. And what that might look like right now is praying for God's protection of the Russian soldiers, praying that they are both saved from killing and from dying and from every other form of being a pawn. That's not something that the American state is going to be happy to hear is going on right now. But it is what the prophetic people are doing. When you say it's impossible, we're not saying it's impossible and therefore we ultimately have to take up arms and rebel in the manner of mankind. It's impossible and therefore we go lower and experience the cruciform path of Jesus. Yes, which we're about to get to. But one more, can I, one more note on empire, which is that, and, and this is the important thing of like, Geo strategy and, and just having, you know, a, having a story about humanity, having a, an understanding of human nature that just makes war like, yeah, of course, which is that as soon as a body of people go, we are a group and we're going to come up with some shifting definition of what that means and we're going to be Babylon, we want to make a world that works for us. We want to define good and evil what you immediately have to do is control the whole world. And you see that in the pattern of goodness, Assyrians, Babylonians, Hittites, Medes, Achaemenids, but let's say Rome, the Celtic Holocaust. Why did Rome expand all the way up into Europe? Friends, they were looking for security, and they pushed as far as they possibly could. And then there was a massive massacre of a Roman legion at Tertullian Wood, and Rome decided, okay, that's the border because this is as far as we can go. Why did Japan take over the entire South Pacific during the Second World War, the single largest theater of war? Uh, they went as far as they possibly could to secure that name against all others. Why did the United States fight the Mexican-American War, a conflict that Ulysses S. Grant called the worst expression of violence or the worst expression of injustice that was ever visited upon a weaker nation by a stronger uh, because as soon as the United States said we're a nation you start expanding and taking everything you can it is it just becomes violent and you know if you look at the boundaries of the world uh, one of the most intelligent answers to why are the boundaries there right now? You go, oh, because the people inside them can't push them any further. As soon as they can, they will. And when you look at things like economic hegemony, you're like, you know, 
Why is Elon Musk assuring people that the internet still works in Ukraine? Why do corporations expand in the way they do? Oh, they go as far as they possibly can until they can go no further for now. And then when the landscape changes, like they keep going. Uh, you know, what, what's fascinating is then the things that you described about the cruciform way, which is that the nation of God, and you said when you gathered with your church, like the ecclesia, it is the gathering. It's literally the word in the Greek Old Testament that's used for assembly when the nation of Israel gets together, all the assembly, ecclesia. So they take that concept and designate the church that way. And they're like, the gathered people who serve Jesus. In Greek society, an ecclesia was a political assembly of actual citizens for civic purposes. And so it's like, okay, so then at last you have the people of God. And what it is that we are doing and are equipped to do. Okay, we've been talking typologically and we've been talking in very broad manner about empire and what it looks like. And you're probably seeing where we're going with this. But let's, let's just make it very concrete and clear so that we can all together read what's happening in the, uh, on the global stage now. And that can help us know how to pray, how to uh, lovingly correct each other or repent and encourage each other toward a more righteous, kingdom-oriented prophetic picture of how to respond in the face of empires doing what empires do, which is oppress and, and kill. So, putting it very straightforwardly, when we look out at the current crisis taking center stage in the media narrative and in, in our conversation right now, Russia invades Ukraine. Ukraine also, as a nation, is an empire. When Crimea, legitimately or not, back in 2014, I think it was, voted to annex itself from Ukraine and join Russia. Ukraine built a dam that cut off 85%, I think, of the water going into Crimea. And in this civil war uh, happening in Ukraine since 2013, 2014, they have been bombing people and actually committing technically war crimes in terms of which bombs they use and, and all the things. So maybe they had, according to human reason, good reasons for that, maybe bad. We're not here to become political commentators in, in that regard and say, like, here's the final word on every decision every person has made in this conflict. The point is that Ukraine is no less an expression of the system of empire than Russia. It is the underdog compared to Russia and compared to, compared to the great powers that are the United States, China, Russia, and then these weird supranational bodies like NATO and the EU. It is the underdog in that regard. But we should not let that fact co-opt our righteous sense of compassion and alignment with the vulnerable in such a way that we become, that we simply choose one of the two dogs in the fight when both dogs are empires. Okay, so that can help us in how we pray for Ukraine, for instance. We can say, God, please help the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia. Please come with your kingdom. And we'll get more into like how to pray about that moving forward. But this is a really critical point that Ukraine is the buffer empire between the United States and NATO and the EU and Russia. And they have chosen one great power to align with versus the other. We could say the West and Russia. It makes me think of a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 36.6, 6, 
where the military leader of Assyria says to Hezekiah, the king of Judah at the time, he says, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. And what you see happening in Ukraine right now, from a, a national perspective, is that they picked one of the great powers to lean on, and yet the thing they're leaning on is a broken spear shaft that is now piercing their hand. The broken spear shaft is the West. That's us. And it's critical to realize, and just, just on, on a practical human, like what's happening politically here, that we, the United States, are at least one of the baddies in this conflict. We have made Ukraine our buffer state and our place to wage proxy warfare subtly, but nonetheless concretely, against Russia. Yes, this is just huge. So I opened, I subscribed to several of the propaganda channels because I want to know what the official story is. And so, you know, getting Time magazine in my inbox this morning, it was like, it's our duty to help Ukrainian refugees find warm welcome in Eastern Europe. Again, all of these stories are not quite real. Then it has, oh, hey, guys, good news. Abortion pill use is going up. And then, hey, Russia's losing a disinformation campaign. And then, hey, the ruble is down to one cent. And, hey, the U.S. and the European Union are going after Putin's wealth. And those things... And I felt so angry at the European Union and the United States and NATO for using an opportunity to try to destroy a rival empire. And, you know, Russia matters because it is a nuclear power, you know, right? The five defined nuclear weapon states, U.S., Russia, U.K., France, China, then it's like, oh, but then there's the four who may have it, Israel, India, Pakistan, maybe North Korea, maybe some others, we don't really know. But it's like, you have empires who want to rule the whole world, who are always taking advantage of moments of crisis to try to destroy each other. And so we should feel forgiveness and compassion, not self-righteous affirmation when we see the United States and the European Union strategically ransacking the Russian economy right now. That's not, like, that's as bad as when, you know, a kid is bullying the other kids on the playground, and then he gets surrounded and he starts getting beaten up. You don't stand by and watch that happen. Like, that's not a good thing. You are always on the side of the revelation of Christ, even to the violent, and to receive receiving Jesus as the once and for all sacrifice. So yes, you said you should see the United States as one of the baddies. Absolutely. Being, and we don't even know how far the strategic reach of this moment really goes in terms of what, what are the empires achieving in solidifying their hegemony because something is up in the air and because people are so spun out. You know, Warren Buffett says that classic line about trading, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. That's like the motto of how to build an empire and go, people are really fearful right now. And 
the empires are taking advantage of that to further entrench and shore up their own power, which is always going to be expressed in violence. Mm. This brings me back a little bit to our conversation about reading the media and knowing how to interpret stories. So why is it that all of a sudden every mainstream media outlet and our government is all almost verbatim aligned in solidarity with Ukraine, in solidarity of the oppressed, but our media haven't cared at all about the oppression that our country has been committing in union with Saudi Arabia against the people of Yemen for years now. I bet you haven't even heard about that. We have been doing what Russia is doing in Ukraine all over the globe for years. Look at, uh, look at Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Latin America. Look at Iraq, for heaven's yeah, sake. Look at the Middle East. We have pillaged and raped and destroyed and brought death and destruction for the sake of preserving our interests strategically, oil, uh, culturally, and so on. Look at what the CIA has done in, in Latin America. It goes on forever. Also, look at the media's willful ignoring of the plight of the Uyghurs in China. Now, some people have spoken out about this, but the fact that it hasn't been the, uh, created the emotional outrage and uh, just like the pitch of emotional response that Ukraine is now creating. I mean, what's happening to the Uyghurs in China is arguably worse than what's happening in Ukraine. Now, comparing human beings suffering is always kind of a, a foolish mathematical project. But what China has been doing to the Uyghurs is truly horrific. It's like something out of a torture porn horror movie. And yet, mostly, the media hasn't cared. There hasn't been this unifying narrative of outcry and the church waking up to, to prophetically critique um, death and destruction in the world and to ask Jesus to bring his mercy, though you know, individual churches have. I'm talking about the meta-narrative. Why all of a sudden is that happening now around Ukraine? And when you ask that question, there's all kinds of interesting possibilities that we should be aware of. Like, while everyone's attention is focused on Ukraine, what else is happening in the world? Political powers know never let a good crisis go to waste. So what else are we being distracted from? This is just a purely common sense kind of question. What is being accelerated through this conflict? Why is the Western media all of a sudden, why are they all of a sudden hawks just chomping at the bit for war? Why are so many people foolishly promoting nuclear war or things that would uh, inevitably lead to World War III? Why has that taken over the mind space? And you can look at it politically, on human terms, and more importantly, spiritually, what are the powers endorsing this project? Yes. You know, when yesterday the article started coming up of Putin has put in nuclear security, you know, countermeasures on alert, I actually laughed out loud when I just went, I'm sorry, but guys, a few of these moves to rile me are so over the top. Do you know who Russia is facing off with? Okay, the United States. Are you willing to consider the history of that empire across Latin America and supported coups, Iran-Contra, ousted government, CIA assassinations? Like, this isn't tinfoil hat stuff. This is... Public record, man. Right. This is as soon... Read the book Born in Blood and Fire, which is a concise history of Latin America. We'll put these questions to rest for you and say that as soon as the United States is another of the nations 
you, you should kind of expect it to be doing stuff like that and go, wow. Um, so, you know, almost where uh, we're a little bit back to where we began in my flesh, which is going, oh man, you know, this, this is still on the trajectory to build the one world order to restrict every domain of human life and to use crisis as has always been the case to to increase the hegemony of the powers both nations and then bodies that have like the tag corporation or limited liability company or ink attached to them and go wow okay wait that's the direction we're going and and there's an empowered prophetic kingly priestly response from the people of God who who have a lot to do in our time and there is a wholehearted response to the suffering that we see in Ukraine that is good and in alignment with the purposes of Christ so in calling out the hypocrisies the inconsistencies the hypocrisies of the war in Ukraine and of the fact that Ukraine as a nation is itself just another empire playing the games of empire. That doesn't mean like, oh, well, therefore, I'm not allowed to care about the people dying. The, I'm not allowed to have emotions about that. No, you are. <laughs> but there is a fleshly emotional re response that makes you susceptible to the aims of propaganda, to the aims of empire. And there is this manufactured there's a manufactured false consciousness form of emotional distress over what's happening in Ukraine. And then there is the position of the church where we are in alignment with the Spirit of God who is waking us up in unity as the church to cry out against empire and against oppression of the vulnerable and in solidarity with children, orphans, the poor, the women, all people who are subject to the oppression of sin and destruction. Not in solidarity with Ukraine or Russia or NATO or any of these things, but with the human beings who are created in the, in the image of God and are loved by Jesus. Yes. This does not mean do nothing. This does not mean pull away. It doesn't mean harden your heart. Exactly. It means do what you find yourself compelled to do out of your union with Jesus. And a little bit, which, which can look really diverse. And a roadmap to get there would be, what is the nation of God doing? Well, I do like hitting on sort of like these prophetic and priestly and kingly functions that were always inside Israel, that are still inside the church. And, and I may hit them a little briefly, but to go, priests, this role of intimacy with God and of helping to manage and represent uh, the heavens to earth and the earth to the heavens. Well, man, Israel is a kingdom of priests. One of, the, one of the things they did was hold out for the world. You know, like, you could say almost holding vigil for the world. Um, I would say, just remember, right, the, at the dispossession of the nations, which happens after the Tower of Babel event and is referenced in Deuteronomy 32, God withdraws to protect people from death by holiness and says, and then he assigned them to the numbers of the sons of God, like, right, indirect governance via the divine council. 
And the symbolic number that's given there is 70, or sometimes 72. On the Day of Atonement in Israel, they would sacrifice 72 bulls uh, to express covering for the world, to purify the world from evil, to keep it open to the presence of God. The sec- First, Jesus empowers his disciples with the Holy Spirit and then sends them out. Then he sends out, depending on which text, 70 or 72. Like the same number to be like, you are going out to express the covering of Jesus for the world, which breaks the dominion of the evil one. And so we were taking communion yesterday in our house church. We like literally held up the elements. We're like, we like are holding the sacrifice of Jesus over the world and interceding like Jesus set, constrain the nation, set boundaries for them. You can do it. And being like, oh, you really are, you are a a people, followers of Jesus, who are empowered in your prayer, in your ritual life, in your worship, to make intercession, which changes the direction of the world. And like a note to hit here is that we can totally change the nature of events, whether it's the end times or not, or just a significant time. You know, when I like look at the description of the intensity of the end of the world, I'm like, yeah, but the pattern of God's flexibility is that the church holding out could really make that a lot different. And two examples are, let, I'm just going to give two. First, Samuel 23, David's come down and rescued the citadel city of Keilah. Saul has found out about it, and Saul is on his way to destroy David. And David inquires of God, will Saul come? God says, yes. He says, will the people of Keilah hand me over? God says, yes. So David leaves, and neither of those things happen, because God is flexible. In Hezekiah's story, he gets sick, and he's told, you know, put your house in order because you're going to die. So Hezekiah's told that, and he prays. 2 Kings 20, verse 2, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And then the prophet Isaiah comes to him and goes, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I will heal you. I will add 15 years to your life. And go, wow, okay. So, like, this intercession, it, it changes the way that things go. Uh, you know, really briefly, one of the things that I love about, like, the prophetic, which is just, I would sort of define, and it's most basic, as the ability to see things according to the story of God, to see reality as it really is, and to do that by hearing the voice of the Lord or by seeing the divine counsel or by applying Urim Thummim at a certain time in Israel's history. Also, being an advisor in the military, that was a key prophetic thing that we said Elisha did. David had a prophet that traveled with him, who gets mentioned a few times, Gad. On this point of the prophetic, a book that I would strongly recommend is one I've already referenced a couple times in this conversation, which is The Prophetic Imagination by Walter Brueggemann. Now, 
Importantly, Brueggemann is, he's another person who I'll invoke, just like uh, Shane Claiborne or earlier, but who I'm kind of suspicious of in some ways. My, a question I recently texted a friend about him is, I can't tell if he is our greatest living theologian, an atheist, or both. <laughs> and uh, he's a very weird guy. I, once in an interview, I heard him say that the most influential theologian in his formation was Marx. Which makes a lot of sense, actually, in some ways, if you get the benefits of Marx's critique of the capitalist system. Which, to be clear, what's happening in Ukraine is largely a consequence of. Anyways, his book, The Prophetic Imagination, he wrote back in the 70s. And it's his thesis on what the prophetic looks like for a people. And so often, in at least evangelical-type Protestant maybe Western Christian culture, the word prophetic typically means foretelling. Blaine, you just mentioned the ability to see things according to the Spirit. That's an appropriately broad enough definition. The way I grew up, the word prophetic was just, I can tell you, like basically do fortune telling, what's going to happen. Now, foretelling is a very important expression of the prophetic, but Brueggemann's argument is that what it means to be prophetic as the people of God is expressed to us in the story of Moses and Israel being called out of Egypt into the desert and into the promised land and so on. It looks like being an alternative called out people who do a few things. One, they repent of, again, what Brueggemann calls the royal consciousness. And so that consciousness is basically the consciousness of empire. And for the astute reader, like throughout his reading of a prophetic people, you'll see Marx's influence on him. But what, what he does is he takes Marx's critique of capitalism and it's the oppression and alienation it brings, which is a real thing. But instead of recommending what Marx recommends, which is uh, Marxism and communism and socialism and this oppressive, evil, satanic project, he recommends, Brueggemann recommends something else. He recommends the kingdom of God, the way of Christ. So first, a prophetic people are aware of their own complicity in the system of empire and their own rebellion against God and their ability to acquire resources under their own power and to become rich and apathetic and to oppress their brothers and to uh, sympathize with warmongering and so on. So step one, a prophetic people repent of that. Part of the process of repentance is they exercise the prophetic role of criticizing empire and embracing pathos. And so that looks like a really developed, a really rich expression of lament and righteous criticism of everything that is not the kingdom of God. So in that process of criticizing empire and of living in this weird called out alternative way, alternative to every, every system of man, there is an emptying in the weeping and the grieving and the repentance and so on, uh, in, in, in that empty space, the prophetic brings an energizing and emergence of amazement. So that repentance and grief and pouring out isn't unto emptiness. It is to make space for a new energizing of the spirit and of a vision of the kingdom of God also of an expression of amazement at the glory of God's way, of his story, of the gospel. And so in Prophetic Imagination, he lists 
this litany of passages throughout the Psalms, the Old Testament, and throughout the Gospels where people were astonished. They were amazed. And so the prophetic expresses that to each other, to like within the people of God, and to the outsider. And then all of this stuff is fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus, and it culminates in his crucifixion. And then the prophetic now promises, it foretells resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, and we foretell the resurrection of all mankind uh, at the return of Christ. Brueggemann writes about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus made possible a future for the disinherited. In the same way, the alternative community of Moses was given a new future by the God who brought freedom for slaves by his powerful word, which both dismantled and created a future and which engaged in radical energizing and radical criticizing. In the same way, the resurrection of Jesus made possible a future for the disinherited, as did the newness announced by Isaiah. The non-people in the non-history of Babylon were given a homecoming like the poor, hungry, and grieving in the history of Jesus. The resurrection is a genuinely historical event in which the dead one rules, but that genuinely historical event has important political dimensions, as is recognized especially in Matthew. On the one hand, it is seen as a threat to the regime, whereas, on the other hand, the risen Jesus announces his new authority. He is now the king who displaces the king. His resurrection is the end of the non-history taught in the royal school, and a new history begins for those who stood outside of history. This new history gives persons new identities and a new ethic, even as it begins on the seashore among the dead enslavers. And that's referring to uh, the waters of the Reed Sea. Dude, epic. Let me, let me riff for a second, because this stuff is huge. This stuff is huge. And you know, were I sort of to break it down, you know, and the, because the kingly, which we haven't talked about, but rolls into this, has this dimension of setting things in order. But the kingship according to Christ is this unbelievable service and vulnerability. And I would say, so wait, what are you saying practically? What are you saying? And being like, well, one of the first things that we're saying is get into the presence of God. You know, that's, that's one of your jobs, by the way, for the world. <laughs> and where do you find God? A walk, worship, get together with your people. And go ahead and pour out your heart just to be like, you know, me praying a couple nights ago, Jesus, I am so torqued. I cannot see rightly. I can't make sense of this. And the suffering of people, soldiers, women, children, I'm so, I just am overwhelmed and, and grief. Like it says, you know, there's the verse, pour out your heart like water. Do that. And then, it, you know, Brueggemann talked about repentance Repentance is an incredible thing for people with a supernatural worldview. It's as much about iniquity or more as it is about guilt, which means that repentance has a ton to do with breaking the real spiritual claims of human failure. This is why, you know, like, uh, people sort of flipped last or a couple years ago during the George Floyd protests over calls to repentance, and we're like, you know, I've never owned slaves. And it was like, wait, no, no, you're thinking of this the wrong way, and you're missing an incredible opportunity to be the people of God who repent on behalf of themselves and on behalf of the oppressors because they don't see themselves 
as better. And in doing that, cancel the long-term spiritual effects of sin. They break the powers of the depraved spirits over a people. And to be like, Jesus, I repent of the violence of the United States. I repent of my own service to it. Now, I own allegiance to things like capitalism. My deep hope that's actually represented in the American dollar, I need more vision. I need to see how I am empowered to be a part of your mission. And then, you know, as, as that's taking place, and it's to go, or I would ask, what, what starts to be sown in your heart as you imagine together with the one person you have who gets it or the five people or the church of people you have how to respond to the world in alignment with the mission of Jesus like and you can do some really creative stuff here you may do stuff for Ukraine I'll tell you what as we're praying right now I have good friends in Slovakia and everything's on the table I'm like Jesus I would totally go out and, you know, keep vigil with those priests who are out there and uh, with that monastic order. And, and what should I do? We, I would do a business thing to give meals to refugees. It all counts. It's all on the table. And the, the and thing that's so vital here is... Seeking Jesus to have a heart like his, who is the most tender-hearted. He is the man of sorrows. As he's being abused and crucified, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. Yes, they know what they're doing. They're killing someone. Uh, and yet, as they're expressing the, the inclination of empire to try to kill God, He's going, yeah, but these soldiers right here, they just don't know what they're caught up in. Forgive them, cover it. May they come to salvation. So it's, where do you find Jesus? You need to see him for everything that follows. All right, so you said the word iniquity earlier. Is that just a synonym for sin? Great question. This is very much worth circling back to because it's vital to the work of the church. It's vital, the work of Jesus. And what's amazing is that the Old Testament has uh, a much richer vocabulary for human failure than many of its translations. We fail in so many ways, we need more than one word for it. I, exactly. Or it's like, how do you define like, the sin that's like an animal? Kata. How do you define the sin that's broken trust? Pesha. How do you define the environmental consequences of sin? Oh, iniquity. So this is, there's a wonderful Bible project video on this, by the way, that we'll link to in the show notes if you kind of want to capture it. But what people realized is that sin, meaning like either of the other two, broken trust or acting in an animalistic way, had a long-term environmental consequence in a relationship that could look like lost trust or lost love, on a farm that could look like dead ground. And people began to realize, whoa, when we have the iniquity of our fathers, sometimes that means like, yep, my dad 
he never saved and education wasn't an important thing to him, so now I feel kind of like poor and directionless and I'm carrying the iniquity of my family, the environmental circumstances. And they knew that that needed the specific redemption of God. What's super crazy, actually, is that revenge in the ancient world would more often be described as visiting a person's iniquity upon them. <laughs> and so... It's also something God does. Yeah, it's epic to my adolescent imagination, which is like, your sin is coming back to visit you. That bully that punched me, I'm going to visit his iniquity upon him. Yes, exactly, because now I have 10 friends, and we're going to go teepee his house, and that would be a nice way of visiting iniquity. That's just a child's practicing of the the ethic of empire. <laughs> yeah. But we know, so, you know, part of atonement, part of the rituals of covering in ancient Israel was to take some of the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it around the camp to extend the cleansing power of life uh, over the environment that had been polluted and corrupted by human failure. And we know that we need that in Jesus and in Isaiah, the suffering servant, is called the one who carries our iniquity. So it is addressed in the work of Jesus. And it's something that we take possession of when we receive Jesus actively as the covering of our iniquity. So iniquity having more of this sense of shared brokenness that gets worked out at a family or tribal or national level, etc. And a great example of that, we're seeing a culmination of in what's happening in Ukraine. So let's back up a little bit and develop this idea. Many of you listening right now, and Blaine and I here, have benefited from the basically free debt that's been available to many people, most people, for the last many years, okay? So I'm talking about... Post-World War II, kind of, and then growing. Yeah, and really I'm talking about like Greenspan and on. Yes. Um, but if you are of the, the population who has recently refinanced your mortgage to go from a 6% or whatever it was for you to a nearly 0%, an effectively 0% interest rate, you are actually caught up in the ethical system, in the economic system, in the political system that is currently expressing itself symptomatically in the form of death and destruction of innocent human beings and not innocent human beings in Ukraine. Is that a giant leap? Well, think about it this way. A long time ago, war was financed by taxation, or at least largely financed by taxation. So if I have the numbers correct in my head, um, World War II was 50% financed by taxation, and the Korean War was 100% financed by taxes. One of the effects of this was that people had less of an appetite for perpetual war because they had skin in the game. And if they supported the war, they had to personally feel the pain of paying for it. And then uh, it, it encouraged them to not want it to last forever and uh, to not want to do it in this haphazard, uh, foolhardy way. Yeah, and let's just say in, in the ancient sense, it was someone's going to roll through and take your young men and then they're going to take a regular supply of your grain and your sheep and your cattle to feed the soldiers on the front line because war is so expensive. That grows over time once we have, you know, uh, slightly more abstract economies to 
the nation's going to roll through. They're either going to sell you a war bond or something else, but that you have to give voluntarily or involuntarily some of your money that you need for other things. In your own flesh and blood. Yes, to go to war. And that used to be more the case in this country as well until, what is it, in the 70s, the draft is abolished. Our army becomes more voluntary. And this is increasingly made possible by the invention of drones and other um, robotic disembodied forms of warfare, cyber warfare being a major example of that, ways in which we can do what we do without making obvious to us in the, in, in the form of like loss of family members, the consequences of our sin. So in Vietnam, there is also a tax on the population to prosecute that war. But then uh, the population rebels and it doesn't go well for Johnson. And it's part of the reason for his downfall and Nixon's inauguration. So the point here isn't to like nerd out endlessly on the minutia of the details. But as, like, what happens is as the dollar, and, and this also, by the way, the point I'm about to make is not an advocacy for returning to the gold standard or any kind of return to anything other than a move forward into the kingdom of God. So anyways, like uh, in the 70s also, the dollar is, is separated from gold in establishing what its value is, and it becomes fiat currency that's endlessly printable. So the working out of that system, your 3%, 1%, whatever you lucked out to get uh, mortgage is part of that system. Um, the, the sort of forced universal basic income that got airdropped into all of our wallets during covid is part of that system. It's why, what is it, 40, 50% now, I don't know, of, of M2, of the dollar supply, 40 to 50% of all ever printed happening in the last couple of years. Um, anyways, so we're talking about the ethics of money production and how our economic system has resulted in the possibility of perpetual warfare and of warfare in which can happen in the background without us having a sense of skin in the game or feeling the pain of it. So I, I asked Blaine early in this conversation what year he was born, 91. Do you mind if that's public or whatever? And making the point that, oh, well, since you, since you were nine, we've been at war. When my kids through overheard conversation realized that there was a war in Ukraine, they were like, there's a war going on? That's new. And I'm, and I'm like, oh, I love you. You're, you're so sweet and innocent. There's been war in this country alone waged against other nations since before you were born. Your entire life, we've been at war, active kinetic war and every other kind. Asterisk there because the nerds know that the declaration of war is kind of a moot instrument and that it now ha happens through authorizations to use military force. We know, guys, we know. <laughs> what we're talking about is that the violent continuation of politics by other means applying hard power to protect resources, control the power structure of the world, fudge national borders, at all, it doesn't matter what you call it, that is war. Yeah, and to work out this argument fully and to go into all the various ways that it applies um, would take a long time, but I'm making this point. The economic system, that is Western liberal democratic capitalism, is fundamentally destructive and oppressive. It gets down to the very philosophical, metaphysical, ethical foundation of our own currency. And it's this vast web of a system that many Christians, the Christians I grew up around, and, and myself included, think is perfectly aligned with the church, with 
a vision of goodness for mankind with what the kingdom of God looks like, uh, which is like the bastion of freedom. But actually, it is fundamentally warfaring, and it results in death and destruction. What's happening in Ukraine, the, the most local recent expression, uh, recent consequence of that system. And we can't escape it on our own. Again, the loan you took out to pay for your house is part of that system. And the point of this whole, of this whole kind of discursive part of the conversation is to say that we share in the iniquity of our nation. The logic that has resulted in the United States and NATO and EU manipulating Ukraine for our ends to be our location for proxy war and aggression against Russia and vice versa, we're part of that. Our hands are not clean. Having a, a more developed vocabulary around brokenness and sin, other than just the word sin and me doing a bad thing, helps us to understand that. And then that's not just to the end of feeling guilty. <laughs> oh, now when I see the, the story of Ukraine, I realize that I kind of benefit from the, the economic logic behind that, the oil and all, and all the various things that have to do with my own livelihood. The point isn't like to look at that and suddenly feel bad in some fleshly guilt way. But in the Brugmanian way that I was referring to earlier as a prophetic community, we get to acknowledge our part in that iniquitous system and repent of it. And we get to, as the church, and let's say, you know, we're speaking in the USA, as the church in the United States, we get to say, Lord, have mercy. We repent, as the church in the United States, of our sympathy with empire, of our alignment with this, the, the oppressive, unjust economic and political systems of the world and of our country. And we realize that we have a part to play in the evil that is working its way out in Ukraine right now. So we don't look at that and feel bad in a self-righteous way where we start cursing Putin. We begin by taking some ownership as the kingdom of God, as the political party that is the kingdom, and repenting out of our alignment with it, and repenting on behalf of just the American nation, that becomes a starting place for moving further into this expression of what it means to be the people of God. Wow. Okay. I just know, because I know that many of the people listening are personal friends of ours, I know my own experience of this to go, everybody is triggered now by something. Or um, some of that landed great. Some of that was disorienting. What do you do? And we, we want to give a few thoughts about the working out of this. I think one of them is, however the global moment is landing for you, the development of the One World Order, um, vaccines or no vaccines, Russia-Ukraine war or NATO hegemony, we really do want it to go well for you. We want you to experience the goodness, joy, solace, and power, the relief that comes from the presence of God. The real, like, if, some, if you were to ask oh my gosh, what do I do about this conversation? I would circle around again to go, where do you experience God? 
Does your life need to change so that you can experience more of God? Mine does. And things like European wars really bring that to the forefront of my mind, where I go, man, I need more time to walk. I need more time to, I was on Craigslist this morning looking for an indoor bike trainer, just needing, going, that's actually a place I love experiencing God. I need, I need to do that. I think another thing would be, where do we find our meeting place? Where are we able to come together and, you know, You'll hear Anthony say this a lot if you hang out with him for any amount of time, but it comes back to the communion table, the communion table, the communion table. This is where we receive Jesus as our life and his blood as our covering. This is where we receive the covenant and participate and where we can come together. I, I know that many of you must be thinking things like, but you missed this important testimony. or You talked about the entirety of the Russia-Ukraine war without talking about blank thing. You totally overlooked it. Yeah, we probably did. Be- I think we got it right. We want, to, we want to show you Jesus, not give an exhaustive account of the nature of contemporaneity. So be like, great, meet us. At the communion table, meet your brothers and sisters in Christ at the communion table where you go, here is Jesus, your covering. Here is Jesus, your daily bread and nourishment. Here is the opportunity to take in the nature of Jesus and receive him as your Sabbath rest. And Sabbath is that moment you know, in time when we take hold of the future in which all things are well. The work is done. The wars are over. Jesus has covered all things. That's the future that we're participating right now in the present tense. So you're looking for ways to relate to your family in the craziness, to relate to your friends. Maybe you wish some of them would listen to this podcast. They probably won't if there are some of you out there recommending it. Uh, But to say... You can meet them where they experience Jesus as the answer to their need. So if I would make it extremely granular, I would ask you, where are you feeling it? In the subjective territory of your life, what are you afraid of? What are you mourning? What are you hoping for? I can sit vigil with you and go and grieve with you and go, I'm so sorry with you. I, I mourn with you the situation of refugees or I mourn with you the situation of soldiers who have no freedom or whatever it is. And man, I feel that. And I feel the fear that, what is it? What are you afraid of in particular? Because that's something that can be given to God and shared together. And then I can pray with you. I, I pray that does not happen. And what is it? Is it a dragged out conflict? Is it 
the magnification of direct government control over more of the world? Is it the opposite of that? Like, what's the thing? Uh, what, what is the future that seems terrible to you because it's devoid of the presence of God? And we can sit with you to be like, oh yeah, and we pray no. We pray, Jesus, that you constrain the spiritual powers stoking hu- human violence. We pray that you set boundaries for the nation. We pray that your Holy Spirit moves, that there is revival in the church, that many people are saved, that the needy are comforted, that the dying are healed and met by God. You make war cease from one end of the earth to the other. Do it, God. You know, this is the thing that you're famous for. Do that. Your kingdom come. Let it be on earth as it is in heaven, and let many people know the joy of salvation. That's good, man. I love recording this podcast because those moments, I'm like, oh yeah, I received that right now. (laughs) I have a list of encouragements and recommendations. One, this year, our gathering for the whole year is studying the book of Matthew, the author of which is quite obsessed with the kingdom of God. We just read through Matthew chapter 5, and I encourage you to read the section of Matthew that is chapters 4 through 7, which is the the parts leading up to the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Mount. Technically, it's chapters 4 through 8, verse 1. It is a wonderful meditation on how God's kingdom is upside down compared to the kingdoms of man. And it's a wonderful reorientation to what walking in his way looks like. It's an invitation to mourn and be comforted, to extending and receiving mercy, to meditating on what it means to be a peacemaker and a son of God. Another recommendation, if you happen to listen to this in time, March 2nd is Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is a beautiful Christian holiday. If you don't know what it is, it's preserved in the Catholic and Orthodox Church and Anglican, in which we remember our own mortality, we remember our own brokenness, we practice mortification. As in the epistle of James, he says, you should mourn and weep and grieve, and in doing so, you'll experience closeness and intimacy with God. And Ash Wednesday inaugurates the season of Lent, that is, the 40 days plus a few Sundays between Ash Wednesday and Resurrection Sunday, Easter. So even if you uh, listen to this post-Ash Wednesday, you can still, I don't know, find an Ash Wednesday liturgy online and practice it with your family. You can still read some of the relevant scriptures. And you can still practice Lent, which is a whole extended season of fasting and of repentance and of a righteous mortification for the sake of of better receiving all the goodness that God has for us. There's a lot to say about like what the theology of the holiday and the, the aesthetic of it and so on, but in this context, I'll just encourage you to practice it. And maybe in the show notes, we'll link to a couple of resources for this holy season. I encourage you to, having repented of the various fleshly responses to the world's narrative, and of your own alignment with empire, to whatever degree the Holy Spirit leads you to, I encourage you to spend some time grieving. Another quote from Prophetic Imagination, Brueggemann writes, I used to think it curious that 
when, having to quote scripture on demand, someone would inevitably say, Jesus wept. Because, of course, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. It is usually done as a gimmick to avoid having to quote a longer passage. But now I understand the depth of that verse. Jesus knew what we numb ones must always learn again. A, that weeping must be real because endings are real. And B, that weeping permits newness. His weeping permits the kingdom to come. Such weeping is a radical criticism, a fearful dismantling, because it means the end of all machismo. Weeping is something kings rarely do without losing their thrones. Yet, the loss of thrones is precisely what is called for in radical criticism. So, I encourage you on your own, with your family, with, uh, in the context of worship with your people, however God leads you, to move into grieving in alignment with the grief that the Holy Spirit experiences in light of all the evil that mankind is, is doing. Another way to practice lament is to just look up a list of psalms of lament and, and read with the psalmist, uh, lament with him and grieve with him. Uh, you can cry out to God. We need you to come and set things right. The nations are raging and plotting in vain. Empire is at it again. The innocent are getting the short end of the stick again. Your people, your church is being persecuted. God, we need you to show up. Another encouragement is to meditate on the meaning of Jesus' crucifixion. The cruciform way is how we express the way of Christ in the midst of oppression. I'll once again read from Prophetic Imagination. The cross is the ultimate metaphor of prophetic criticism because it means the end of the old consciousness that brings death on everyone. The crucifixion articulates God's odd freedom, his strange justice, and his peculiar power. It is this freedom, justice, and power that breaks the power of the old age and brings it to death. Without the cross, prophetic imagination will likely be as strident and as destructive as that which it criticizes. So whenever the world is telling you to take up arms or to celebrate retaliation in kind or for Blaine, become a prepper out of your own power or for me, pridefully just dismiss everything and say it doesn't matter. Instead, we can embrace Jesus' cruciform path. My final encouragement here would be that having repented, having grieved and lamented, having accepted that the way that we are called to respond looks cruciform, going lower, serving, we are then, uh, we have so much room to be filled with the life of the Holy Spirit, with power and energy and creativity to express God's kingdom prophetically in whatever way he tells you to. And that can look all kinds of ways. It can look like doing some sort of fundraiser for people in Ukraine. It can look like your people doing some sort of something weird that looks like performance art that very few people will get, but it's the, it's the picture God gave you, a prophetic image that you can express. It's writing poetry. Uh, it's worshiping. It's having a feast and inviting a homeless person off the street to come eat it with you. It's all the various beautiful expressions of kingdom life. Uh, there's this infinite creative possibility when we partner with the Holy Spirit and he fills us with his vision of how to proclaim the coming kingdom, the victory of Christ and the resurrection in the midst of what seems like overwhelming human destruction. Yes. Fast for a day to keep vigil with Ukraine. 
throw a party for your people and the people they know to prophesy the end of all wars to the world. Fund missionaries who go to Russia. Jesus will inspire you. And you'll find yourself with him. In Revelation 22, it says, Then the angel showed me, uh, this is John speaking, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's my last word in this conversation. This picture of a river of life flowing out of the throne of God and the Lamb in the heavenly city that's descended to earth. And on either side of this river, a tree of life. And the leaves of this tree of life being healing for the nations. This is our hope that Jesus is returning and he will set all things right and he will bring healing to the nations. That's so good. We'll leave you today with the words of Numbers 6, 24 to 26, which is a word of blessing and it's for you. It is prophetically for the people of Ukraine. It is prophetically for the people of Russia. It is for Joe Biden. It is for the people who make up NATO. Uh, is blessing unto the revelation of Jesus. And it goes, The Lord bless you, friends, and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Lord is coming, is coming after his own. Lord is coming, is coming after his own.